Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and we have episode 274 for May 30th, 2022. And we've got a new show for you today and plenty of articles to talk about there. But before we get to the news, a couple announcements. First of all, the big patron promotion is still going on. If you missed your chance of getting one of those really cool dragon challenge coins that you can actually use to generate passphrases to make yourself more secure, you've got about two more weeks to get that done. It's going to end on Tuesday, June 14th. So uh, if you missed them last year, and I haven't done this kind of promotion since last year where I gave out the coins, if you missed it, now is your chance. And I am really super close to meeting my first goal level on Patreon, which is basically just to cover my costs. This podcast does cost money. Uh, just running a business costs money. So I've been trying to get to the point where I can at least break even because the government really doesn't like businesses that don't make money. They, they don't really consider them businesses. So, so uh, anyway, so I'm very close to doing that. Uh, hopefully I'm going to get over that line. And then, you know, I just want to reinvest more. I want to reach more people. I want to do better things for the show. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of those things just cost money. So anyway, that's what this is all about. I'm retired. I don't need to make money on this. I just want to reinvest in the business. So, and I really, honestly, I'm trying to make it worth your while. I've got a lot of bonus podcast content and things for, for my patrons. Uh, you can access me directly on discord. Uh, we have a lot of fun chats there. You get some sneak previews of stuff going on. You get some extra special show notes. There's lots of reasons to become a patron. So I'm trying to make it worthwhile and I'm open to ideas from you guys. So, you know, I'm asking my patrons all the time what else I can do. So anyway, check that out. You got two more weeks if you want to get the challenge coins. Of course, you can become a patron anytime, but now's a great time to do it because you'll get these cool challenge coins. Oh, and I'm throwing in some stickers too yeah, with the coins. If you get a coin, you get some stickers as well. Now, another thing I want to mention real quick, uh, and I'll do these at the end of the show, but I got a couple really nice book reviews on Amazon. These things are few and far between. It's so hard to get reviews, uh, but I got two of them out of nowhere. So anyway, I'm going to read those. That's a little way of saying thank you. I will read those after the news. Stay tuned for those. And one more quick update. I've got another Amulet of Entropy teaser. You can link, get a link to the show notes for that. It's a little post on Twitter. I'm My hands are kind of tied on this. I've been sworn to secrecy. So uh, I'm letting my partner run all the teasers and uh, releasing information about this. And as soon as it's all out, I can give you the full details. But until then, uh, check out the teasers in the show notes uh, for the upcoming mystery thing called the Amulet of Entropy. All right, so we have a new show for you today. Uh, I'm going to talk yet again about Clearview AI and how they're expanding into new territory with their business, which should frighten us all. I'm going to talk about another facial recognition story, this time with MasterCard, who has this uh, very euphemistically named service called smile to pay But there's been a great development in the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act enforcement by the D Department of Justice here in the United States which has been a long, long time coming. Twitter has just been fined and agreed to pay a, f a fine to the FCC about mishandling some data, but it's honestly just a slap on the wrist. And during the pandemic, a lot of our local governments told our students that they needed to be using these invasive education technology products that have, surprise, surprise, tracked them and taken their data and done who knows what with it. There's been a rather disturbing development with DuckDuckGo. It's probably not as bad as it sounds, but nevertheless, it, I wish it hadn't happened. So uh, I'll give you my thoughts on that. Uh, in the UK, Google has been sued for abusing NHS data. There's a new Wells Fargo bank phishing scheme going around that I want to tell you about. There's been a problem found with the OAuth authentication scheme used, used by Google and Facebook. 
This is the sign in with technology that you've seen or continue with sometimes the buttons say. And then finally, uh, leading into the tip of the week, there's a story about a woman who says that the iPhone SOS feature saved her from being assaulted. And so I will explain to you how to set that up on your iPhone and also on your Android device. So let's get to the news. All right, first up, this is from Gizmodo. And yet another article about Clearview AI, the facial recognition company that is snarfing up all of your pictures that you have posted on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, you name it, and building a massive, massive database. I think they're already at 20 billion faces, uh, not unique faces, obviously, there's, <laughs> there's not that many people on the planet, but pictures of people that they use to identify people just by looking at their face. Well, now they are expanding that business into schools and some other places. So anyway, let me read this article from Gizmodo. Clearview AI, the surveillance firm notoriously known for harvesting some 20 billion face scans off of public social media searches, says it may bring its technology to schools and other private businesses. In an interview with Reuters on Tuesday, the company revealed it's working with a U.S. company selling visitor management systems to schools. Though Clearview wouldn't provide more details about the education-linked companies to to Gizmodo. Other facial recognition competitors have spent years trying to bring the tech to schools with varying levels of success and pushback. New York State even moved to ban facial recognition in schools two years ago. In a press release Wednesday, the company outlined a path towards an apparent one-to-one face match verification method that could be used in schools, banks, and other private firms as part of its new Clearview Consent product. Clearview says it seeks to sell its facial recognition tool to enterprise companies decoupled from its massive database of faces. Theoretically, that means private companies could use Clearview's system as a one-to-one identity verification tool before creating an online account, check-in a passenger at an airport, or protecting against financial fraud. And this is a quote from Clearview's uh, CEO, Honton Tat. And he says, quote, today, FRT, which is facial recognition technology, is used to unlock your phone, verify your identity, board a plane, access a building, and even for payment. Now we are offering companies who use facial recognition as part of a consent-based workflow access, gotta love these business euphemisms, to Clearview AI's superior industry-leading FRT algorithm, bringing an increased level of security and protection to the marketplace, unquote. Clearview wouldn't comment on how many companies have shown interest in the program. This new, modified approach marks a departure from Clearview's infamous one-to-many facial recognition standard, which attempts to verify the identity of individuals against its hulking database of faces, a surveillance method decried by privacy groups and lawmakers alike. Recent regulations targeting that specific asset of Clearview's business have likely made Clearview's appetite for change all the more palatable. Clearview's adapted verification approach has reportedly gained the attraction of a Colombian app-based lending startup called Vale, V-A-A-L-E, I probably mispronounced that, who's using it to match user selfies to their IDs. Other face match companies like ID.me use what looks like a similar approach to verify the identities of users attempting to access U.S. government websites. Privacy advocates generally prefer the one-to-one face matching's inherently more restrictive and content-driven nature compared to the more Wild West surveillance states aspect to the one-to-many recognition. That said, groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation warn face matching still poses its own long list of potential problems. All right, so the article goes on, and um, they actually didn't quote that much from EFF here. Uh, I've got a link in the show notes to a more 
lengthy article from the EFF about the dangers of facial recognition technology. But also, I've got a big interview in the works uh, with someone from the ACLU. We're going to talk about Clearview AI because they they are on the forefront of battling Clearview and what they're doing. So uh, we should get a great bunch of insight from that interview, which will happen. Uh, it's going to be several weeks, but um, that is in the future. But just to talk about one aspect of this, this is different. This is fundamentally different, this one-to-one matching. So the way this works is they've already got a picture of you somewhere, like this is what they're doing in airports if they want to see if you match your passport photo, for example. So your passport photo is already in the system. They, they, they have that already. Or your driver's license photo. Those are government-issued IDs, and those pictures are in government databases. So that when you go to these systems and you say, I am Carrie Parker, they say, well, I have Carrie Parker's picture. Let's see if your face matches that picture, which is a whole different thing than hey, there's somebody's face. Let me look through 20 billion photos that I've scoured on the internet to see if that face matches any of those 20 billion faces. That is very different. Now, here's the thing though. I mean, if I was Clearview AI and I was doing the system, yeah, sure, uh, you know, the system itself would be a one-to-one match. But behind the scenes, I would certainly be looking at all those faces and, and sending it back to the systems back home and seeing if I have that in, in the one-to-many database as well and getting more data. Why wouldn't you? But anyway, there's there are a lot more issues with it than the, than just that. And I've talked about it many, many times on the show. So uh, maybe you can go back and look for some past episodes or just check that article I put in the show notes. All right, moving on. This is from The Guardian. It's about a new facial-based paying system that MasterCard is starting to roll out. And the article says, quote, MasterCard is rolling out a controversial program that will allow shoppers to pay at the till with a mere smile or wave of the hand as it tries to secure a slice of the $18 billion biometrics market. While facial recognition technology has long raised eyebrows among civil rights groups, the payments giant said it was pushing ahead with its biometric checkout program it claimed would speed up payments, cut queues, and provide more security than a standard credit or debit card. And this is a quote from MasterCard. They said, quote, Once enrolled, there is no need to slow down the checkout queue searching through their pockets or bag. Consumers can simply check the bill and smile into a camera or wave their hand over a reader to pay, unquote. Which sounds like they're doing more than just faces. They may be doing palm scanning. Anyway, continuing, it says MasterCard also claimed the new payment system could be more hygienic, tapping into health concerns that came to the fore in the COVID pandemic. The first pilots will launch in Brazil in five St. Marsh supermarkets in Sao Paulo this week with shoppers able to register for biometric payments in the store or via an app with their local partner, Payface. (laughs) Nice name. A spokesperson for MasterCard said a UK rollout was part of its near-term plan and that the company was having, quote, encouraging conversation with potential partners, unquote. In the meantime, it will focus on launching the technology in markets including Latin America, the Middle East, Africa, and Asia. MasterCard pointed to research suggesting that 74% of global consumers had a quote-unquote positive attitude toward biometric technology, though activists have long raised concerns over data storage and tracking. Susie Miles, a partner at law firm Ashford's, said, quote, MasterCard themselves have recognized the data and security concerns that come with the use of biometrics. A password can be changed. Your smile and a wave cannot. If biometric data is hacked, then the risk of fraudulent activity could be considerably higher than current payment methods, unquote. There are also debates about how the data could be used to track, screen, or monitor unsuspecting consumers. 
And this is another quote from Miles. She says, quote, while it seems MasterCard have taken steps to protect and encrypt this data, as biometric payments become more commonplace, the use of such data is likely to evolve and it will inevitably become harder to protect individuals' rights to privacy, unquote. So yeah, this is not, this is not good. We should not be using biometrics for this purpose. I get that it's convenient, but it's not foolproof. I mean, you know, this might seem grisly, but you know, you could be disfigured. But like the article says, biometrics really is much more of a username than a password. And we're actually going to be talking about that soon in an upcoming interview. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll hold off on that, on that discussion till then. So next up, this is, this is from The Verge, and this is an extremely welcome development. So it's about a new Justice Department ruling uh, about how to interpret the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Let me just dive in. The U.S. Department of Justice says it won't subject, quote, good faith security research, unquote, to charges under anti-hacking laws, acknowledging long-standing concerns around the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, or the CFAA. Prosecutors must also avoid charging people for simply violating a website's terms of service, including minor rule-breaking like embellishing a dating profile or using a work-related computer for personal tasks. The new DOJ policy attempts to allay fears about the CFAA's broad and ambiguous scope following a 2021 Supreme Court ruling that encouraged reading the law more narrowly. The ruling warned that government prosecutors' earlier interpretation risked criminalizing a, quote, breathtaking amount of commonplace computer activity, unquote, laying out several hypothetical examples that the DOJ now promises it won't prosecute. That change is paired with a safe harbor for researchers carrying out, quote, good faith testing, investigation, and or correction of a security flaw or vulnerability, unquote. The new rules take effect immediately, replacing old guidelines issued in 2014. And this is a quote from the DOJ press release. It says, quote, the policy clarifies that hypothetical CFAA violations that have concerned some courts and commentators are not to be charged. Embellishing an online dating profile contrary to the terms of service of the dating website, creating fictional accounts on hiring, housing, or rental websites, using a pseudonym on a social networking site that prohibits them, checking sports scores at work, paying bills at work, or violating an access restriction contained in a terms of service are not themselves sufficient to warrant federal criminal charges, unquote. These new guidelines reflect a newly limited interpretation of, quote, exceeding authorized access, unquote, to a computer, a practice criminalized by the CFAA in 1986. As writer and law professor Oren Kerr explained in 2021, there's been a decades-long conflict over whether people quote-unquote, exceed their access by violating any rule laid down by a network or computer owner, or if they have to access explicitly off-limit systems and information. The former interpretation has led to cases like U.S. versus Drew, where prosecutors charged a woman for creating a fake profile on MySpace. The policy doesn't settle all criticisms of the CFA, like its potential for disproportionately long prison sentences. It doesn't make the underlying law any less vague since it only affects how the prosecutors interpret it. The DOJ also warns that the security research exception isn't a quote-unquote free pass for probing networks. Someone who found a bug and extorted the system's owner using that knowledge, for instance, could be charged for performing that research in bad faith. Even with these limits, though, the rulemaking is a pledge to avoid slapping punitive anti-hacking charges on anyone who uses a computer system in a way its owner doesn't like. So we've talked about this before, but this law, this CFAA, was really poorly, poorly worded and has been used against a lot of people, uh, and, and in particular in this case, computer researchers who were trying to do the right thing, trying to find bugs in systems and then report them responsibly so that they could be fixed. 
So this is a very, very welcome development. Honestly, they really need to just amend the law, but this is a good first step. Now, I, <laughs> I don't know what, what good this does people who have already been convicted on the previously you know, bad interpretation of this law. And also many states have their own laws similar to this. And who's to say whether or not they're going to change the way they do their enforcement and go after people who do this sort of thing based on their own, you know, interpretation of this. So anyway, it's, uh, it's not a complete fix, but it's still a welcome development. All right, next up, this is from NPR. It's about Twitter and a fine that they're paying for abusing your data, which turns out to be a drop in the bucket. But let me read this article. Twitter has agreed to pay a $150 million fine after federal law enforcement officials accused the social media company of illegally using people's personal data over six years to help sell targeted advertisements. In court documents made public on Wednesday, the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice say Twitter violated a 2011 agreement with regulators in which the company vowed to not use information gathered for security purposes, like users' phone numbers and email addresses, to help advertisers target people with ads. Federal investigators say Twitter broke that promise. And this is a quote from FTC chair Lena Khan. She says, quote, as the complaint notes, Twitter obtained data from users on the pretext of harnessing it for security purposes, but then ended up also using the data to target users with ads, unquote. Twitter requires users to provide a telephone number and email address to authenticate accounts. That information also helps people reset their passwords and unlock their accounts when the company blocks logging in due to suspicious activity. But until at least September 2019, Twitter was also using that information to boost its advertising business by allowing advertisers access to users' phone numbers and email addresses. That ran afoul of the agreement the company had with regulators. And this is a quote from Sam Levine, who leads the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection. And Sam says, quote, If you're telling people you're using their phone numbers to secure their accounts and then you use them for other purposes, you're deceiving them and breaking the law, unquote. More than 140 million Twitter users provided this kind of personal information based on Twitter's deceptive statements, according to federal prosecutors. Twitter's chief privacy officer, Damian Kieran, acknowledged in a blog post that users' personal information, quote, may have been inadvertently used for advertising, unquote. He said the company is no longer selling information gathered for security purposes to advertisers. Under terms of a proposed agreement, Twitter agreed to stop profiting from information gathered for security purposes. The deal, which still needs the court's approval, also would limit employees' access to users' personal data. Under the terms of the FTC's deal with Twitter, regulators and an independent monitor will have oversight of the company's advertising practices for two decades. So yeah, this was really sleazy. Twitter should definitely not have done this. And let's face it, 150 million bucks is nothing. That's a ridiculously low fine. I wouldn't even call that a slap on the wrist. I mean, if you just look at the article, it said it affected 140 million Twitter users and it was a $150 million fine. It's like a buck a, a, buck a user. That's nothing. But with Lena Khan uh, as the FTC chair, I think we're going to start seeing more of this kind of stuff. And that is a good thing. All right, next up, I've got an article here from Human Rights Watch. And obviously, given the name of the organization, there's going to be an obvious slant to this story. But I agree with their slant. So anyway, and this is about how governments have imposed all sorts of requirements on students and kids during the pandemic that turned out to be a little bit too quick on the draw and didn't pay enough attention to restrictions on how data might be collected on these kids. So anyway, let me read this article. Governments of 49 of the world's most populous countries harmed children's rights by endorsing online learning products during COVID-19 school closures without adequately protecting children's privacy, Human Rights Watch said in a report released today. And this, I think, is uh, May 25th. And this is a long-winded title. This is the title of the report. It says, 
How dare they peep into my private life? Children's rights violations by governments that endorsed online learning during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, This report is grounded in technical and policy analysis conducted by Human Rights Watch on 164 education technology or ed tech products endorsed by 49 countries. It includes an examination of 290 companies found to have collected, processed, or received children's data since March 2021 and calls on governments to adopt modern child data protection laws to protect children online. And this is a quote from one of the children's rights and technology researchers and an advocate at the Human Rights Watch. And this person says, quote, children should be safe in school, whether that's in person or online. By failing to ensure that their recommended online learning products protected children and their data, governments flung open the door for companies to surveil children online, outside school hours, and deep into their private lives, unquote. Of the 164 EdTech products reviewed, 146, or 89%, appeared to engage in data practices that risked or infringed on children's rights. These products monitored or had the capacity to monitor children, in most cases secretly and without the consent of children or their parents. In many cases, harvesting personal data such as who they are, where they are, what they do in the classroom, who their family and friends are, and what kind of device their families could afford for them to use. Most online learning platforms examined installed tracking technologies that trailed children outside of their virtual classrooms and across the internet over time. Some invisibly tagged and fingerprinted children in ways that were impossible to avoid or erase, even if the children, their parents, and the teacher had been aware and had the desire to do so without destroying the device. And I think that sounds kind of drastic, but I think what they mean there is they were using device-specific identifiers uh, to track them, meaning that without changing to a different device or destroying destroying the device for some reason, uh, they would still be tracked. Most online learning platforms sent or granted access to children's data to advertising technology companies, ad tech. In doing so, some ed tech products targeted children with behavioral advertising. By using children's data extracted from educational settings to target them with personalized content and advertisements that follow them across the internet, these companies not only distorted children's online experiences, but also risked influencing their opinions and beliefs at a time in their lives when they are at high risk of manipulative interference. Many more ed tech products sent children's data to ad tech companies that specialize in behavioral advertising or whose algorithms determine what children see online. With the exception of Morocco, all governments reviewed in this report endorsed at least one ed tech product that risked or undermined children's rights. Most ed tech products were offered to governments at no direct financial cost. By endorsing and enabling the wide adoption of ed tech products, governments offloaded the true costs of providing online education onto children who were unknowingly forced to pay for their learning with their rights to privacy and access to information and potentially their freedom of thought. Children, parents, and teachers were largely kept in the dark about these data surveillance practices. Human Rights Watch found that the data surveillance took place in virtual classrooms and educational settings where children could not reasonably object to such surveillance. Most ed tech companies did not allow students to decline to be tracked. Most of this monitoring happened secretly without the child's knowledge or consent. In most instances, it was impossible for children to opt out of such surveillance and data collection without opting out of compulsory education and giving up on formal learning during the pandemic. As more children spend increasing amounts of their childhood online, their reliance on the connected world and digital services that enable their education will likely continue long after the end of the pandemic. Governments should pass and enforce modern child data protection laws that provide safeguards around the collection, processing, and use of children's data. Companies should immediately stop collecting, processing, and sharing children's data in ways that risk or infringe on their rights. Human Rights Watch has launched a global campaign, hashtag students, not products, 
which brings together parents, teachers, children, and allies to support this call and demand protections for children online. So, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. That's just awful. But this stuff is just not going to change without regulation. I mean, the financial incentives are just all wrong. All right, moving on. And this is another not so fun story. This is about DuckDuckGo. You may have seen this in the news, uh, but let me read this. Uh, let me read this article and then I'll kind of give my take on it. And this is from the Review Geek. I'm not sure how I stumbled upon this version of this, but uh, let me read what they had to say here. DuckDuckGo made a deal with the devil. Due to a confidential search agreement, the DuckDuckGo browser does not block all Microsoft trackers. What's worse, DuckDuckGo only acknowledged this quote-unquote privacy hole after it was discovered by a security researcher. As you may know, DuckDuckGo pulls its search results from other services, primarily Bing, which is the Microsoft search engine. You may also know that clicking a Microsoft-provided ad in DuckDuckGo will reveal your IP address to the Microsoft Advertising Service. This is explicitly stated on DuckDuckGo's website and in the company's search engine. But this partnership goes a bit deeper than we thought. Security researcher, and it just gives their Twitter handle, the the Z Edwards, found that the mobile DuckDuckGo browser does not block Microsoft trackers on third-party websites such as Facebook-owned Workplace.com. Gabriel Weinberg, the CEO of DuckDuckGo, is now running damage control on Twitter. He explains that Microsoft cannot see what you search in DuckDuckGo, and the DuckDuckGo browser blocks all Microsoft cookies. But if you visit a website that contains Microsoft trackers, then your data is exposed to services like Bing and LinkedIn. This is the result of DuckDuckGo's, quote, search syndication agreement, unquote, with Microsoft. In order to pull search results from Bing, the privacy experts at DuckDuckGo have to poke holes in their browser's security system. While DuckDuckGo has a solid privacy policy when it comes to Microsoft's ads, it hasn't explained how Microsoft uses data from third-party trackers. And that's quite alarming. Maybe the situation is overblown, or maybe Microsoft can build targeted ad profiles based on your web activity in DuckDuckGo. We don't know because DuckDuckGo signed a confidentiality agreement. Gabriel Weinberg says that DuckDuckGo is, quote, working tirelessly behind the scenes, unquote, to improve its deal with Microsoft. Additionally, he expects DuckDuckGo to, quote, include more third-party Microsoft protection, unquote, in a future update. Yeah, that's great, but why are we only hearing about this now? We've all seen the ads and billboards. Privacy and transparency are the biggest features in DuckDuckGo's browser. Oh, but Microsoft gets an exception and users aren't allowed to know about it. It's clear that DuckDuckGo doesn't offer the level of privacy that it promises to users. And unfortunately, I'm not sure that any company or software can protect your browsing data. The internet doesn't run on privacy or anonymity. It runs on money, and your data is worth a lot of money. So yeah, this was this was very disappointing. It's not quite as bad as it sounds. It's not in their search engine this happens, which is what I've recommended to a lot of people. This is in the DuckDuckGo browser. Like DuckDuckGo makes its own web browser. And I, I don't know if I've actually ever recommended that one specifically, except maybe on mobile. And this is only related to Microsoft-based uh, tracking. And I, it's really kind of confusing. And it's hard to tell what really is going on here. But again, because I guess there's a confidentiality agreement. Um, but I think this only kicks in if you actually click on a Microsoft ad while using a DuckDuckGo browser. And then, even then, I think it only happens if you're using like a mobile browser that doesn't have a, another plugin that, like uBlock Origin that is blocking tracking. So if you're, if you're doing all the things that I've recommended you do, this is not going to be an issue for you because between the combination of the plugins and the browser, this is not going to happen. But the real issue here is that they were not, not as clear about this as I should be. Yes, if you knew where to find this information on their webpage, 
you had have seen some verbiage about exceptions made from Microsoft. But no one's going to read that. I'd never read it, and I'm a privacy person. Now, I did read it now, and even then, it's just, it's, it's just muddy. It's not really that clear. All right, so what, what's the takeaway? The takeaway, of course, is that the ad-based revenue model is just ruining everything, and we don't have regulations to keep it in check. Behavioral advertising is ruling the web right now, and that means tracking as much as humanly possible. And then there's all these companies that make these products that are quote-unquote free, that are all ad-driven in the background, and so if you want access to the one, you gotta, you got to give them access to your data. It's, it's a freaking mess. So does this change my recommendation? About using DuckDuckGo as a search engine? No, there's no difference there. You could still use DuckDuckGo. Personally, I've been using Brave Search lately and I've uh, been pretty happy with it. They do their own indexing, actually. They don't use Bing or Google or anything else behind the scenes. So if you're looking for another option, especially if you're looking for a mobile browser option, uh, if you don't want to use the DuckDuckGo browser on your mobile device, try using the Brave browser. I still appreciate what these guys are doing. I know that it's hard to do what they do, and I know they got to make money somehow. And so just like Firefox, who makes a lot of money off making Google their default search engine, you know, you can still fix that with a plugin or change or changing the search engine. You can work around that, but they've got to make money somehow. And unfortunately, they, like this article says, they have to make the make deals with the devil. All right, moving on. This is an article from Sky News. Google's being sued over its use of confidential medical records belonging to 1.6 million individuals in the UK. The company's artificial intelligence arm, DeepMind, received the data in 2015 from the Royal Free NHS Trust in London for the purpose of testing a smartphone app called Streams. The claim is being brought by Andrew Prismall in a representative action in the high court. It alleges that Google and DeepMind, quote, obtained and used a substantial number of confidential medical records without patients' knowledge or consent, unquote. Google received data belonging to 1.6 million patients, some of whom had simply attended A&E within the last five years, in order to test a smartphone app that could detect acute kidney injuries. The smartphone app, which is designed to address the 25% of preventable deaths from acute kidney injuries if they were detected early enough, were subsequently used by the Royal Free NHS Trust on a discount basis. Sky News previously revealed that Royal Free shared the patient's data on an, quote, inappropriate legal basis, unquote, according to a leaked letter from the most senior data protection advisor in the NHS. The deal was subsequently found to be illegal by the UK's privacy watchdog, which decided not to issue a fine to Royal Free, explaining there was a lack of guidance for the sector. At the time of the Information Commissioner's Office announcement, DeepMind stressed that its, quote, findings are about the Royal Free, but we need to reflect on our own actions too, unquote. The representative action comes as the British government looks for, the, looks for ways for the private sector to use NHS data to mutually improve patient care and the country's growing AI sector. Mr. Prismal said, quote, I hope that this case can achieve a fair outcome and closure for the many patients whose confidential records were, without the patient's knowledge, obtained and used by these large tech companies, unquote. Ben Lasserson, partner at Mishkan Derea, the law firm representing Mr. Prismal, said the claim was, quote unquote, particularly import important. And he went on to say, quote, it should provide some much needed clarity as to the proper parameters in which technology companies can be allowed to access and make use of private health information, unquote. So this is an area where I think we need to find some better way, because if we did collect and use a lot of properly anonymized medical data, we could use that for some really great purposes that would help all of us. 
but we've got to do it the right way and we've got to be careful. And more to the point, it has to be anonymized. We have to use some really interesting technologies like differential privacy to do everything we can to mask people's identities and yet still be able to glean some important correlations out of this data that will help all of us. All right, next up, this is an article from Kaspersky about a bank phishing campaign going on right now uh, being used for identity theft. And we've talked about things like this before, but, but every once in a while, it's good to bring these things back up so we can talk about specific examples and just kind of refresh your memory. So anyway, from Kaspersky. Scammers often pose as well-known companies, video streaming services, job hunting websites, internet stores, and so on. This time, fishers are targeting customers of Wells Fargo, one of the four largest U.S. banks providing services in more than 40 countries. Counting on the bank's trustworthiness, the cybercriminals don't limit themselves to stealing bank card credentials, but go after email accounts and selfies of users holding their ID documents too. As ever, an attack starts with a phishing email designed to alarm the recipient. It informs the user that their Wells Fargo bank account has been blocked, allegedly due to an unverified email address or a mistake in their home address. To regain access, the message asks the recipient to follow the link and verify their identity within 24 hours of receiving the notification. Otherwise, it will no longer be possible to transfer or withdraw money, the letter warns. The email looks quite convincing. A neat logo element, business-style text, and almost no errors. Even the sender's name and address are very similar to those of the bank's customer service. However, the address does have a very unusual domain to a non-existent zone, Wells Fargo-com instead of .com, but it takes a sharp eye to spot it. The link in the email points to a third-party site, and from there, via a redirect to a fake Wells Fargo account, account login page. Here, the fishers made less of an effort. The design does not match that of the official page, and the URL has nothing to do with the bank at all, but for some reason references either the Bruce Springsteen song, The Ties That Bind, or the TV series of the same name. On the very first page, the victim is prompted to enter their Wells Fargo account username and password, but that's only the beginning. Two more quote-unquote verification stages lie ahead. Having signed in, the victim lands on the next page, where there are a lot more fields to fill out. Here, the scammers brazenly ask for an email address with password, a phone number with postal address, the user's date of birth, and social security number, and of course, payment details. Aside from a bank card number and an expiration date, they also ask to fill in the CVV code on the back plus PIN. Next comes the most interesting bit. The user is prompted to upload a selfie in which they're holding up an ID document. This page displays no fewer than three Wells Fargo logos, probably to add credibility. However, some typos spoil the impression. And by the way, this article has a bunch of pictures of what you're seeing here. So they're kind of referring to things they assume you can see, which you can't. But the link is in the show notes if you want to see what they're talking about. Having extracted all vital data from the victim, the scammers report that the account has been successfully restored and redirect said victim to the real Wells Fargo website. This maneuver is designed to make them believe that they have been on the legitimate resource all the time. Typically, this kind of phishing is used to build up a massive database for subsequent sale on the dark web. The merchandise is valuable. Armed with such a treasure trove of personal data, criminals can siphon off money from the victim's card. But it doesn't stop there. With a data set like this, they can also enrich themselves in other ways at the victim's expense. For example, by opening a bank or crypto exchange account to launder stolen funds, obtain a credit card, and so on. With an ID card selfie and social security number, attackers have every chance of passing the KYC, or Know Your Customer, security check required for such transactions. 
As such, after entering the data, probably nothing will happen at first. Only later will trouble arise. This may pose an additional danger. By the time the cyber criminals start using the stolen data, the user may no longer remember having entered this personal data somewhere, making it much harder for them to give bank representatives or police officers a proper explanation. And then, of course, being Kaspersky, they give you some tips. And I was thinking about making this my tip of the week, but let's let's just make this a freebie, shall we? <laughs> so this is here are some tips from Kaspersky on how to avoid phishing scams. They say, one, look carefully at unexpected emails about account suspensions, suspicious charges, odd purchases, or generous giveaways. They are nearly always fake. Two, do not follow links and emails to bank websites. It's better to enter the URL of the official site manually or find it on Google, Bing, or other reliable search engine. I wouldn't even do that. I would just do it manually. Three, remember that as a rule, full personal information plus a selfie with an ID document are not required to recover a bank account. And you certainly don't have to enter the CVV code from the back of your card, let alone your PIN. If you are asked for this, be very wary and contact the bank for confirmation by calling the phone number printed on your card. Four, if you are a Wells Fargo customer and get a phishing email, report it to your bank immediately so that they can take measures to protect other users. And then five, of course, being Kaspersky, they say, install a reliable security solution that warns you about scams and phishing attempts and keeps your valuable data safe from cyber criminals. So I would take issue with that last one. But the rest of that is pretty much your standard behavior for avoiding being a victim of a phishing scam. All right, next up, this is from Forbes. Uh, it's about um, a security problem with Facebook and uh, people who log into Gmail using what's called an OAuth code. Let me read the article and then I'll talk a little bit more about what that means. How do you sign into services? Because a newly disclosed Facebook exploit might change how you go about it in the future. In an eye-opening blog post, security researcher Yusef Samuda has revealed that chaining Gmail's OAuth authentication code with vulnerabilities in Facebook enabled him to hijack Facebook accounts when users logged in with their Gmail credentials. Speaking to The Daily Swing, and I have no idea who that is, Samuda explained that he was able to use redirects in Google OAuth and chain them with elements of Facebook's logout, checkpoint, and sandbox systems to break into accounts. He explained that while he demonstrated the proof of concept with Gmail credentials, quote, it was possible to target all Facebook users, unquote. Samuda says Facebook paid him a $44,000 bug bounty for his disclosure of this vulnerability in February. Facebook subsequently patched it in March, though it was only made public this week. And this was actually last week. And while not directly responsible for the exploit, the fact OAuth was chained to the Facebook vulnerability puts a spotlight on this popular security standard and added risks and the added risks it brings. So what is OAuth? The name derives from open authorization and it is an open standard adopted by many of the world's largest tech companies, including Amazon, Microsoft, Twitter, Google, and many others. Its calling card is convenience. It allows users to link their existing accounts with a big tech company to third-party sites for registration and use these credentials to sign in. No new account is required. And here's where the concerns arise. Commenting on Samud's findings, security, security provider Malware Labs issued a warning to anyone using linked accounts. And this is a quote from Malwarebytes' uh, Peter Arntz. Quote, linked accounts were invented to make logging in easier. You can use one account to log into other apps, sites, and services. All you need to do to access the account is confirm that the account is yours. We wouldn't recommend it because if anyone gets hold of one, the one password that controls them all, you're in even bigger trouble than you would be if only one site's password is compromised, unquote. This is it in a nutshell, and OAuth is far from impenetrable. The good news is it is possible to unlink accounts. In the case of Facebook, navigate to Settings and Privacy, Settings, 
Accounts Center button, Accounts and Profiles. Similar unlinking processes can be used on the other third-party sites. So I actually have a blog entry for this uh, at a newsletter article. So if you're a newsletter subscriber, this is already sitting in your inbox where I basically say, stop using all these sign in with things, uh, or sometimes they'll uh, continue with like continue with Google or continue with Facebook. As this article rightly points out, it, it, it makes for a single point of failure. You're if for some reason, if you're signing in with Google everywhere or signing in with Facebook everywhere, if somebody compromises your Facebook account or somehow gets this magic Facebook authorization token, they can now log into all these other sites that you have linked to Facebook or Google. OAuth is convenient. It's a, it's a form of what we call single sign-on or SSO, but it's just not worth the risk. Use a password manager, generate a brand new account for every site you go to. And in fact, if you really want to kick it up a notch, use a brand new uh, email alias for every account as well. So that you, you know, because normally your email address is the same across all these accounts, right? So if I'm a bad guy and I've compromised one of your accounts where I have your email and that password, I'm going to take that same email and password uh, and use it everywhere else to see where else I can get into with, a, with that email and password. That's called credential stuffing. So if you use the same email everywhere, because you probably only have one or two email addresses. And so when they ask you for an email address, that's the one you give, then that's half the information. That's half the battle. And of course, if you're reusing passwords, then they have everything they need. Anyway, there's details about this in the article. If you want to check my website, firewallsdonestopdragons.com, look for that recent article with more info. All right, last up, and this will lead to our tip of the week. And this is from 9to5Mac because it's an iPhone story. So this is about iOS's SOS mode or emergency mode. Kelly Wurst was leaving the beach after a night with friends when a man asked her for help in finding his iPhone. It was 2 a.m. and she was about to head home in her Lyft. That's L-Y-F-T, like Uber. Thinking it would be a quick favor, she asked her Lyft driver to wait. And this is a quote from uh, Worst. She says, quote, He said he was in the military and not from here, and I just immediately thought of my brother who's in the military. I figured he probably has to report somewhere in the morning. He's going to be in trouble if he doesn't get there. I just felt bad for him and wanted to help him. And honestly, when he told me he was in the military, I felt a sense of safety, unquote. Worst repeatedly called his iPhone to see if they could hear a ring. Things became suspicious when she tried using Find My because it found the number invalid. Thinking she may have typed the number in wrong, she handed him her iPhone. This is when he began to make sexual gestures toward her. And another quote from her, she says, quote, I turned around and walked away and probably got about five steps away from him. And that's when he came up to me and covered my mouth and nose and tackled me to the ground and had me pinned face down in the sand, unquote. While trying to escape, Worst reached to her iPhone for help. She activated the SOS feature by pressing and holding the side button and volume button and then swiping across. From then, 911 was able to hear everything that happened. Fortunately, officers arrived on the scene very quickly where the man proceeded to run away. And finally, another quote from her, she says, quote, My phone in my hand and knowing how to activate the SOS feature is what saved my life, unquote. So that brings me to the tip of the week, and this may be something you are not aware of, but iPhones have this SOS mode, this emergency mode, and Android does too, sort of, and I'll get to that in a minute, but there is a way on your phone to invoke this SOS feature, and like it says, you have to, it, it works out pretty well because it turns out that it's pretty easy to do. Uh, you need to hold the, the power button on one side and either the volume up or the volume down button on the other side. Honestly, I do this by mistake all the time and end up taking screenshots when I don't mean to. But if you press and hold them, I think it's for five seconds, it lo- brings up this SOS mode, this emergency mode. 
And from there, you've got a few choices on your screen, one of which is to make an, a 911 call or make an emergency call. It's not just 911. It works in whatever, in whatever country you're in if, if there's a standard number to call. Um, or it can show medical ID information, for example, like a medical alert bracelet would. Or you can just power off the phone. That's another one of the options for this mode. But here's, I think, the really important part. Instead of what the article says, where she, she pressed both buttons and held them until this special thing appeared, if you continue to press and hold that, uh, there's a timer that will eventually count down, and it will just call 911 automatically. Furthermore, this, this special mode of the iPhone actually does other things, too. Uh, if you have an emergency contact set... Uh, it will alert your emergency contacts with a text message unless you choose to cancel. Again, these are things that pop up and say, kind of like a dead man switch, like, unless you tell me not to, I'm, I'm going to do this. And it will send your current location. Uh, and then for a period of time after that, um, when it's in this mode, uh, your emergency contacts will receive updates whenever your location changes. So that's that's really cool. And obviously, if <laughs> if you need it in the right situation, might be life-saving. And the medical ID stuff is important too. It's kind of like a medic, uh, medical alert bracelet. You can put things in there like allergies and, and other information that will be available to a first responder if you are unconscious, and uh, but you've got an iPhone there. They know to check these things and will look for this sort of information. So now, again, I'm, I'm an iPhone guy. I don't have an Android phone, so I'm not used to this, but I have looked this up and there are ways to do this, at least on the Google Pixel phone, uh, as well as the Samsung Galaxy phone. And they've got slightly different ways to do this. I'm not going to go through all the details here, but I will put links in the show notes uh, so you can look it up. And that's, again, if you've got a Google Pixel phone or if you've got a Samsung Galaxy phone, uh, they've got similar emergency apps. I don't know why this is not just built into stock Android. Maybe it is by now, but if so, I couldn't find it. But it's definitely important to get to know these things and and understand what these modes are so that in in a pinch, in an emergency, you know how to activate them. So there you go. There's your news and your tip of the week. All right, everybody. Thanks again for tuning in. Again, if you don't mind, I would love to get some fresh reviews for the podcast. Uh, do it in your favorite app, but um, the best place, to, honestly, to leave them where most people see that is on Apple's iTunes. I really love to get some uh, brand new reviews. And to that note, uh, I've got two new reviews uh, on the book, which were great. Uh, one of them was actually really long. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, and it's from Hal, and it gave me five stars. And it says, uh, the best beginner's guide to all things security and privacy. And Hal says, I started listening to a lot of podcasts at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. And one of those had the best possible name, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. As a massive fantasy nerd, I, of course, needed to dive deeper. Run by Carrie Parker, a cybersecurity and privacy advocate, author, podcast host, and informational speaker, Firewalls is a catch-all privacy and security guide for beginners. It's filled with great interviews and advice for more experienced folks as well, but it's absolutely the best entryway into this convoluted world that I have yet to find for those who are less inclined toward tech exploration. So when I realized Kerry had based his podcast on his best-selling book of the same name, I knew I needed to get a copy. Turns out to be just as solid as I'd hoped, brimming with step-by-step instructions, detailed yet accessible overviews of all the common tech terms and situations, and a host of practical and simple advice that anyone can follow to learn how to protect themselves and their loved ones online. There are now just two books that I hand out to people who need a primer on the modern world of tech. Cory Doctorow's How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism and Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hal, thank you so much. That was a wonderful review. And then I got another one from Sadie, five out of five stars. And she just says, great book. That, that is just as, just as much appreciated, Sadie. Thank you so much. Again, the patron promotion only has two weeks left. 
if you sign up for a patron at the right level, you get one of my really cool dragon challenge coins. And I've also thrown in some stickers now. I just made some stickers with my logo and those will come with the coins as well. You've got until June 14th to enter. There's lots of other great benefits for being a patron. If you go to patreon.com and search for firewalls, don't stop dragons, you can get all the information there. Of course, there are links in the show notes Do all the above. All right, that's going to do it. I've got great shows in the pipeline, folks. I've got an interview coming up probably next week on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency that I've been wanting to do for so long. Uh, That's finally going to be here. I've got another great interview with somebody from Yubico on the passwordless authentication methods that are all over the news. And then coming down the pike, I've got a deep dive interview with a friend of mine from the ACLU about Clearview AI and facial recognition technology in general. And as always, the bonus podcast content from my patrons will be dropping on Thursday morning. And all my patrons have access to me and each other uh, on our Discord server. So lots of fun there. Hope to get some more patrons with this promotion. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.